The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And today the show is bringing you a team of angels to your rescue. What does that mean? Well, you'll find out. We're about to enter 2009. Can you believe it? It seems like the uh, the millennium was was here just just a few a few short years ago, and yet it's been a lot longer. Where are you now compared to where you were then? And what did you think was going to be happening in the 21st century? And and is it happening the way you thought? Well, I don't think any of us really thought back in 2000 that our economic situation would be the way it is today or that uh, there would be all of this violence erupting all over the world. Um, other than I tried to warn people about that part for years, talking about how media violence is causing there to be deposited seedlings of violence all over the world, copycat violence, but that's another show. <laughs> we'll, we'll save that for another time. But... A lot of people are finding themselves in a real pickle as they close 2008 and worried about how they're going to get out of it. Well, if you're feeling overwhelmed, you are not alone. And my guests today, John and Patricia Gallagher, have been there. They have risen from the ashes of both emotional ruin and financial ruin. And today they're going to be sharing their story. And um, although certainly it takes you to tragedies that uh, that most of us have not encountered, um, it also will show you just how they manage to pull themselves up and not only be able to help themselves in the process and get to a better place, but learn how and, and discover how and now be involved in how to help others. The team of angels is one part of it. And also they're doing a um, project that they'll tell you about. But first, let's uh, start. Oh, and, and I must mention that they have written a book about their story, which is called No More Secrets. And um, their story is incredibly compelling. We can all identify. Perhaps we haven't gone quite to the edge in, in some respects, but in the general sense of feeling overwhelmed, anxious, and depressed, I think we can all identify with that. And so their story of of how they were able to conquer um, their problems and and rise up um, from the ashes really is an inspiration to all of us. So, first of all, welcome to the show, John and Patricia Gallagher. Thank you, Dr. Carroll. Thank you, Dr. Carroll. Now, why don't we start with you, John, Um, chronologically, with um, how you how you sort of found yourself um, descending, uh, beginning your descent. So let's put it that way. 
Well, back in 1999, um, I had a lot of stress at work. I was working at Bristol Myers Squibb as a financial analyst. And, um, you know, they, they told me that there was a possibility of, of my job uh, going away. And I had, you know, I had a wife, I had four children, I had a big house in, uh, in, in the suburbs, and, uh, and the stress of losing my job really, you know, started to overwhelm me. I came home and I told Trish that, you know, there was a possibility of that happening. And, uh, you know, I, and, you know, I, I tried to look around looking for a job and everything and it was, it was very hard, hard to find one. And, uh, I, I have a, a preoccupation with stress, uh, uh, to begin with. And, uh, I think just the buildup of, of marital problems and financial problems and, and work problems, uh, just started to overwhelm me. And what do you mean you have a, how did you put it, a predisposition or there's a, there's a sensitivity? A, it's, a, what did it's, you a, it's a genetic predisposition, uh, which has to do with, uh, a limitation of stress. I just think that, uh, all those things, uh, coming forward really led, to, led to my, uh, my depression. Well, okay, we, I know you're talking about your mother, but we can, we can, we can go back to that, or, or you can tell us now, how did you, um, because that was an interesting part of the story, how you discovered um, and when you discovered. If you could just do it chronologically, I'm not sure when that came, of your discovery about your mother's history of depression in all of this, but, but just take your time so that we can really understand and get into your head a little bit. Well, I guess about three years ago, uh, you know, my wife and I uh, went down the shore uh, to uh, to Wildwood, my aunt Dot, who was seventy five, seventy six years old, you know, we were having a, a nice discussion with her, and she was going on. You know, my my wife died, my mother died. I'm sorry, when I was nine years old, and she was telling me, you know, what a great florist she was. And then all of a sudden, uh, she came out with the fact that my mother had depression. I had no idea that that she had. I mean, this was the first time. That I've heard this, and I'm I'm like 57 years old now, so this was really a shock to me. And and uh, then I thought, well, you know, this is the reason why I, I've been having a problem with with the stress buildup. So, you know, my wife and I were really really very shocked by that. And yes, and your mother, um, her depression caused her to have to be hospitalized. It did. And, of course, you found this out, in other words, this was three years ago, so this was way after you had suffered your own problems that you'll tell us about. Um, that's really interesting that, that no one, that you didn't know before, because that might have helped people treat you back in 99, you know. If, I, I, if you... I, think, I think one of the major problems in today's world is the stigma of depression, and uh, nobody wants to get involved, nobody wants to talk about it, nobody wants that that uh, stain on the reputation, yeah. and that's one reason why Trish and I want to speak because we want to try to destigmatize, uh, uh, yes. destigmatize the, the, the situation. Because the more you talk about something like this, the more people are aware, and uh, the more people, the more you can help people, and the more people can can be helped by this kind of thing. So when you were a little boy. Um, you don't remember your mother having going away to the hospital or or being depressed. 
Well, what I was told is that she died of cirrhosis of the liver, uh, drinking a lot to, to try to, uh, to, to, to uh, take care of her, you know, yeah. her situational problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought, well, you know, uh, she was separated from my father, and mm. and her coping mechanism for dealing with that was was drinking. And, but when I talked to my aunt Dot, I I realized that the core of that problem was depression, and not just uh, drinking alcohol to cover to cover her problems. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and your father um, is your father still alive? No, my father died a few years ago. So, I mean, he didn't, he didn't tell you about it either. Nothing was ever said about it. Because of the stigma. Because I, I, apparently, you know, uh, and, and life goes on because, uh, you know, they, they just didn't want to say that there were, there were any major problems with the family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so taking, going back to, um, when you're when you became um at the peak of your being overwhelmed you said that this was um in 99 mm-hmm. so why don't you take us back to to that day well i woke in the middle of the night uh my head was racing my my brain was racing uh in a way that i had never experienced and uh, i was really scared um I was, everybody else was sleeping, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, my heart started to palpitate, um, and uh, I got up, and uh, I thought, well, you know, maybe if I go downstairs and put the television on, maybe I'll, I'll be able to uh, relax, because I was really, you know, I was scared, I was nervous, and uh, I went downstairs, I turned the television on, and, uh, you know, it was it was like a train... <laughs> A train going 100 miles an hour in my head. It was really scary. Uh, like I said, I turned the television on to no avail. My wife woke up. She came downstairs and asked me what was wrong, and I said, I, th- I think I'm having some kind of a, a, a chemical imbalance in my brain. And uh, I tried to go back to sleep that night, and I wasn't able to. I prayed to God to, uh, to try to let me go back to sleep, and I, I wasn't able to. Next morning, I went to my family practitioner, and that was the step in the wrong direction because my family practitioner misdiagnosed me with anxiety, and uh, he prescribed Buspar, which is an anti-anxiolytic. And it may have relieved some of the symptoms, but it didn't relieve the, the major symptoms. Like I wasn't able to sleep for about three months, um, you know, the, the nervousness, I wasn't able to concentrate, I wasn't able to focus at work. Um, you know, again, I had the heart palpitations, and, um, I, you know, th- and, and, and being misdiagnosed like that, he told me that, well, you know, just try to, to relax and let the medicine do its work, and, you know, he said the medicine would take about three to four weeks to kick in, and uh, it never did. And then after it did, the fact that it didn't kick in, I just started to spiral downward. I went to a, um, a neurologist. I went to a cardiologist. Uh, the cardiologist, you know, gave me heart medicine. The neurologist, I thought I had some kind of a brain tumor because I had this tremendous, tremendous headache that wouldn't go away. And, um, you know, whatever he did or 
were said, you know, it just didn't it didn't help me at all. And uh, you know, I just began to to uh, I lost something like fifty five or sixty pounds, and uh, it just got worse and worse. And during this time, did you think of going to a psychiatrist? Never. Uh, you know, I think I heard the word depression at one point, but I just thought I thought to myself, well, I'm not depressed. I'm just I'm just really you know really stressed out from worried about you know losing my job and uh, worried about take, take, taking care of my family and things like that. Because I mean. I still had I, I I couldn't sleep, but I still had to be a father to my children, and I still had to be a, a, a father. I still had to be a husband to my wife, and uh, you know you, you still had to try to do all the necessary things that you would normally do when you were when you were nor, you know normally functioning. And uh, like I said, I had a chemical imbalance, and I I couldn't even concentrate. I couldn't even come up with an intelligent sentence. Okay, we'll, we'll have to take a break now, but when we come back, we will continue with your story. Um, my guests are John and Patricia Gallagher, and of course, we're going to hear from her, too, from a wife's perspective. And um, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, so stay tuned. Right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Had an accident? The people you may encounter may be attorneys, doctors, and insurance agents. How do you protect yourself and your family? Tune into Meeting by Accident with attorney Tom Woodruff an experienced trial attorney and former legislator. Attorney Woodruff and his expert guests assist and inform on what to do in a crisis, what steps to take, what to avoid, and most important, what you need to know to get through the process. Meeting by Accident broadcasts every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Because being informed makes all the difference. Tune into Meeting by Accident with attorney Tom Woodruff. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com 
Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, bringing to you today a team of angels to your rescue. My guests are John and Patricia Gallagher. Their book is No More Secrets, and they're telling you their story of how they have been where a lot of people are now, feeling overwhelmed, depressed, anxious, wondering how to climb up out of the hole. And so their story is uh, incredibly inspirational, and uh, we'll continue with it right now. So, John, um, there you were uh, seeing all these doctors, and I had asked you before um, about you're not seeing a psychiatrist, because you, so you thought it was something physical, but... Um, but then you did say you thought it was a chemical imbalance. Was it also sort of a stigma? Were you did, did the thought cross your mind to see a psychiatrist, but then you didn't want to seem think that you were crazy? When the family practitioner um, said that I, he, when I went to see him, he said one thing: you don't have a chemical imbalance. Hmm. And then once he said that I didn't have a chemical imbalance, I just thought, you know, I, I, I guess I, there must be. I must have another, you know, there must be another mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. But uh, okay. but I always thought that, I mean, there was something that, you know, the, the neurotransmitters weren't connecting in my brain. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, uh, to summarize where I was, I couldn't sleep. I suffered a searing headache. I lost like 55, 60 pounds. I began wearing two sets of clothes to work so people wouldn't notice that I lost all this weight. Um, anyway, one day, I think it was April 28th, I drove to work, I pulled over and stood behind the car and I breathed in as much carbon monoxide as I could. Uh, it's not that I wanted to die, it's just that I, I wanted this horrible feeling inside me to stop. So it, it seemed like, you know, taking my life was the only solution, but that solution was too final, I couldn't even do that. I drove home, I told my wife what I did. And uh, she immediately, immediately called Warminster Hospital. Uh, two days later, I was in the third floor of the hospital. Uh, Trish came in with a photo album to remind me of all the good times, uh, to make me appreciate how life was. But it had an opposite effect on me. 
and I just thought to myself that life will never be the same. Uh, so I asked her to uh, call and uh, you know get some clothes together for me and be able to bring those over to me. And when she left, uh, I looked at the window and I thought this is the only way that I want to actually have some peace. And I I hurled myself out the window. And, of course, that's because you were in the medical part of the hospital, not the psychiatric part where you wouldn't be able to do that. Right. I would, yeah, I was, see, when, when, I went, when I went to the hospital, my blood pressure was off the charts. It was off the charts. It was sky high. And they decided to put me in the cardiology department so that they could, they could work on, you know, on, on getting my heart rate uh, a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was in the cardiology unit. But had they, I mean, you told them you had taken this gas. Had they, did they call a psychiatrist consult? Did you see well, when them? I, when I first went to the hospital, they, they checked me for carbon monoxide poisoning, and apparently I hadn't taken enough to really hurt mm-hmm. myself. Dr. Carroll, I have to interject something. Sure. <sighs> Boy, this was a scary time. It was April 28th, and I remember it was just about two days before and I looked at John, and he was wearing the same shirt to work for the second or third day in a row. And he was such a clothes horse before that with the Mont Blanc pen and the gold tie bar and dressed to the nines. And this burgundy T-shirt he wouldn't have worn to watch a kid playing baseball, and he was wearing it again. And just a fleeting thought went through my mind. I thought, he wouldn't try to commit suicide, would he? And I pictured this bridge on the way to work. And that morning of April 28th, I looked at him about 6 in the morning. He was standing next to the bed, and I said, John, where were you? And he said, I was going to drown. And I said, were you going to work? And he said, I was going to drown. And so I just said, just lay down. And I just really didn't know what to do, but he fell asleep. And it was the first time he fell asleep in about three months, so it gave me time to regroup for a minute. And I actually took three kids to school, just quickly got to the bus stop, because I thought, thank God he's asleep. Now what do I do? I didn't know about the carbon monoxide. And I called this doctor, and I said, this is Patricia Gallagher. John's been in to see you a few times. And he, he says, more like a 1,000. I said, doctor, he really needs to go somewhere to take a rest. He's been driving around for hours this morning. He said, well, I don't doubt that. So I woke John up, and I took him to the hospital. And right before we got to the hospital, he said, Trish, I'm going to die. And I said, no, John, you're just stressed. He said, no, I took carbon monoxide. And when we got into the hospital, they asked him how long he had breathed it, and he said nine or ten minutes. And they said, we're going to take him in to check for the residue. And when they brought him out, it was about nine o'clock in the morning, and they put us in a room on these orange vinyl chairs, and we sat in that room from nine o'clock in the morning till 11 o'clock at night. And they said they were waiting for a bed. Well, to me, it just seemed like they were totally ignoring us. I mean... They brought papers over for John to sign, and I'm thinking, sign papers? He doesn't even know what you're talking about. And then John said, tell them I have an eating disorder. And I said, eating disorder? What is he even talking about? And then I remembered that for about a month before, even though he was losing all this weight, he was buying so much food that was sitting on the kitchen counter and the refrigerator that he was never eating. And everything for that month was about food. Do you think I can eat this? Do you think I can eat that? And the kids and I were just so unsettled. We didn't know what was going on. And they were in third grade, sixth grade, ninth grade, and tenth grade. And at 11 o'clock at night, they found a bed for him, and he stayed overnight. And they were talking about, well, he can come back for the day program 
on Monday, and this was a Thursday morning after he had an overnight stay in the psych unit, and I said, you can't send Thursday morning and you want him to come back on Monday for a day program. He can't send them home. He took carbon monoxide. He was going to jump from a bridge, you know, and they said, well, you know, there's really nothing we can do. We think he's suited for the day program. And wow. so I then asked him to make an appointment for him to go to another hospital for an evaluation, but that wouldn't be until the next day, Friday. And that Friday morning when I woke up thinking I was going to take him to a hospital for the evaluation, I looked over and to me he looked dead. And I, his face was ashen, his eyes were fixed open like staring at, you know, a deer in the night. And I just started screaming to the kids, Daddy's dead, Daddy's dead. And they were dialing 119-911. They didn't know what they were dialing. And they went and got a couple of neighbors and... We threw him on the floor, and he came too. But he was oh. truly comatose, and we got him to the hospital. And well, what was, was that from? Oh, that's where I got there, and I said, Doctor, what's that from? Did he take an overdose of Paxil? He goes, Mrs. Gallagher, sit down. You're inundating us with information. And he said, the first thing you have to get is blood pressure under control, and then it's mental illness. And I wanted to say, mental illness? You must have the wrong bracelet. There's no mental illness here. This is my husband, John. Like, we don't. We don't even, what? You know, like that. And so I stayed for most of the day, and then I went home to kind of regroup because I say I gave housewives a very bad name, by the way. I went out with the ambulance early that morning. And uh, I don't think I had a chenille bed spread wrapped around me, but I think it was pretty bad, whatever it was. And I went home, and I got dressed like I was going to the prom. I outlined my lips. I put a scarf with a pretty burlap dress, and I went back, my hair all styled. And I wanted them to know that, look, this is a normal family. Uh-huh. You know, we we are a suburban family that lives in the cul-de-sac. I'm, I'm exaggerating when I say that, but I just thought, you were treating us like we were pond scum or nuts or something. It was no dignity. You made us sit on those chairs for all those hours, and nobody even offered us a muffin. And every time I'd go to say something to you about something, I remember you tell me to sit down, you know. So... I came back, and when I got back to the hospital, they said he's on the third floor in the cardiac unit. And I said, why isn't he in the psychiatric unit? And the doctor said to me, Mrs. Gallagher, unless he has a, and he pointed his, his fingers up to his mouth, unless he has a gun to his mouth, he said, insurance won't cover it, and insurance won't cover him to be in the psychiatric floor. So I went into John's room, and the nurse was there, and I brought a Scrabble game and these photo albums, and I said, and John looked so handsome. He just had his Bristol-Myers squib outfit on. He was sitting very peacefully in a chair, and the nurse was being real nice. And he said, Trish, would you call your mom and ask her to bring my loafers? And I said, sure. And I called, ran out of the room, and I said, Mom, he's fine. He's on the third floor. He's, they're going to keep him overnight. Will you bring his shoes over? And I walked out, and somebody screamed, was there a patient in room 318? He just threw himself out the window. And I looked down, and I I truly couldn't believe what I saw. But there was a fleeting thought after I started screaming. My husband jumped out a window, and I heard the nurse call, call 911. I'm thinking, first of all, call 911. Since it happened outside the hospital, yeah. they didn't bring him back in. They took him to another hospital. And then what? they asked me what faith I was. And I said, what, what you were? What faith. Uh-huh. And they called a Catholic priest, and they put me in a small room with a Catholic priest and a hospital administrator, so I thought he had died. But the fleeting thought that I had was, okay, God, I guess this is the only way you could take him out of his pain because I knew the 13 months prior of John 
documented that he went to his primary 34 times in two months. He went to his work doctor almost every day. He had been to specialists, I'm going to say eight specialists, from January until this day in April. So altogether, I'm just making up a number of maybe 70 doctor's visits. And no one ever called me or said anything, like your husband's in deep trouble. But after John jumped and I started rifling through his briefcases and his top drawer and everything because I thought, what would make him do this? Is he having an affair? Did he have a baby with somebody? Like, give me a clue. But I did find referrals from some of these doctors that he had gone to or letters to his primary from the specialist saying that this man is under a great deal of stress and needs to have visit a psychiatrist. Huh. Wow. Well, you know, not only is this story tragic for you, but it's certainly pointing out... Um, uh, a lot of the deficiencies in our healthcare system. I mean, it's certainly one of the gla- one glaring one that I often it's, it's a pet peeve of mine is how um, primary doctors don't refer enough to psychiatrists, mm-hmm. especially these days when money is tight and they want to keep patients coming to them instead of going and and they're prescribing medication instead of sending them for a psychiatrist who can do medication and therapy. We'll come back after this break. My guests are John and Patricia Gallagher. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. What can you tell me about SkillsUSA? SkillsUSA teaches you employability skills. So you know how to deal with people, you have teamwork, your resume is going to look awesome. Well, it's important to know your technical skills, but not only that, to have soft skills, the skills of learning how to communicate with people. On the web at skillsusa.org. Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with easy to understand tools and tips with his weekly guests jim draws from successes with professionals college high school and youth teams coaches and players learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure tension and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with championship thinking every tuesday at 4 p.m pacific time right here on america's voice voice america are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times do you want help then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. 
Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today. So contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking uh, with you today with my guests, John and Patricia Gallagher. And their daughter, Robin, has just joined us. Thank you, Robin, for coming on and sharing your um, part of this story. Um, the, bu- the book that they've written about it is No More Secrets. And we left you literally on a cliffhanger before the break. We will get back to that. But I just wanted to say how much um, I, and I'm sure my listeners, appreciate your sharing this really personal, intimate, tragic story of course it does have a happier ending but um a lot of people already can relate and and um the reason why you're doing it and this is sort of have is becoming clear because you want to try to prevent people other people um especially this is a, such an important time for your book to be coming out because um because people are feeling more anxious and depressed than ever and um i'm sure that uh, although People may not be admitting it to others or even to themselves. There are uh, an increasing number who have been thinking of um, committing suicide themselves, thinking, how can I make this stop? How can I make the pain stop? So you're really on this, on this um, campaign to awaken people, awaken people to some of the problems. But before we, and we'll talk about how you're doing that and, and uh, so on um, later on in the show, but let's get back to the story. And why don't I, this would be a good time, Robin, you've heard what yeah. your parents have been saying so far. Um, what, how was it for you as you were 16 at the time, right, that this all yeah. started happening yeah. in 99? And... Um, what was it like for you to see your father sort of fall down the rabbit hole? Well, you know, as a 16-year-old in high school, you know, trying to deal with all my pressures of school and, and activities and trying to hold the family together, you know, because I was the oldest, um, it was really hard. And my mom did a great job, but at the same time, I also found myself avoiding going home, going to friends' houses, and that's where I was that day. Huh. I was out, yeah, with my sister and with, with one of our friends. And so, and, um, how, how did yeah, you find we, out? I'm sorry, what? How did you find out what had happened? Our neighbor had come back to the house and said, "I have to take you to the hospital right away." And we said, "Why? You know, what's going on?" And she had told us, "You know, your dad." And she didn't really say much. She just said, "You know, your dad. You know, he needs you right now." And we said, "Okay." And we went to, you know, of course, we drove to the hospital, and. uh she, you know, she said, you know, you know, your dad really needs you right now. So we got there, and our grandfather was crying. We'd never seen our grandfather cry before, and I really thought my my dad had died. Um, and we, we, of course, we went in, and 
my mom was sitting there and with, with a chaplain and our family all around, and my mom had told us that our father had jumped out of the window. And, and did you just, feel, I mean, I'm sure you felt a lot of mixed emotions, um, but was absolutely. one of the feelings guilt that, that somehow you should have done more? Well, um, I don't think we ever really felt guilt like we should really do more. We really just couldn't understand why our dad would do that. You know, our dad was the type of guy who, you know, couldn't even go on the roller coaster with us because he was afraid of heights. So for him to jump out of the window, we thought, this isn't our dad. You know, we don't even know what you're talking about. You know, we, we had no idea. It was really just utter shock and disbelief. Uh-huh. By the way, I'm so afraid of heights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's still, yeah. I mean, this is this is a guy. This is a, our father who said, you know, don't go too far out in the ocean. Don't do this. You know, just always a worry wart. Uh-huh. And you know, like, you know, dad, it's okay. And for our dad to be able to jump out of a three-star window is unbelievable. Okay, and then what happened? So then, of course, you know, we just you know huddled together and just prayed and prayed that our dad would be okay, and he made it through. And uh, it was it was a tough road. And, you know, I can credit my mom, to, you know, for, be, for being there because, I mean, without her, we, I don't think this could be possible, my dad's recovery. Um, you know, our family was great. Our neighbors, everyone really helped us out. Well, now there was a time also after that. Well, well why don't you continue with what happened? But I'm trying to, you know, there, there are a lot of emotions that come up when something, you know, the 13 months before this and now this, um, besides feeling somewhat helpless, not, and I'm talking about all, not just you, Robin, but I, I'm sure, Patricia, didn't you also have a lot of these mixed emotions, feeling helpless, um, wishing that you could help him more, feeling angry at him for not being the provider that, um, that he once was feeling guilty that, you know, is there something that, that um, he wanted you to do better, that he was depressed or anxious because of things in the marriage or things with the children? Um, you know, there's a whole complexity of emotions besides, of course, feeling um, terrified that he was going to die. Uh, um, all of my mom answered that question. <laughs> okay. Chronologically, the March before it happened, so 13 months before, life was grand. I said, you know, we lived in a four-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath house in the cul-de-sac, but we were moving now to a five-bedroom house with a pool and an in-law suite and a beautiful development called Buck Hill Estates, which in our area, that was like moving up a notch. So the Prudential sign was out and the REMAX money was on the other property, and that was the day that John came in. And he put his head down on the bed and he said, Trish, I have to find another job. And I said, in the company or outside the company? He said, it doesn't matter, but they gave me three to six months. He said, but I don't want you to tell anybody. It's too embarrassing. So the three months went by, and I didn't think he was looking for a job that much. And um, But one day he came home and he said, oh, I have good news. He said, let's go to McDonald's. I want to tell you what it is. He said, I got another job. It's in the company. It's at the same pay level. But throughout the night, he was having, like, anxiety and sweating, and he said, I can't take that job. That would be like jumping from the frying pan into the fire. And he went into work, and he declined that job. And another three months went by, and now the six months have gone. I said, John, what are you going to do today? You know, six months are up. He said, I'm just going to keep going in. So he kept going in, and nobody said anything. And he would call me every day, very anxious. Nobody's talking to me. I don't have anybody to go to lunch with. Did anybody call from all those resumes I sent out? Did you send thank you notes to all the people I had the interviews with? 
So after going into work and them not saying anything, we didn't know what was going on, you know, and John didn't want to ask, but he was still getting paid. But what was happening then is that he was coming home and he was exhausted or he was coming home and he was irritable or we would go to the mall and he'd say, I think I'm having a heart attack or he'd be eating, eating something at a party and he'd think he was choking and we'd go to St. Mary Hospital and there would be no chicken in his throat and there would be nothing wrong with his heart. But we didn't know what, we didn't know what mental illness, panic attacks, those depression, they didn't mean anything to us. And I remember it was January 7th, his birthday, before the April, and he didn't have a tape deck working in his car, and he liked to listen to tapes. And very impulsively, I said, I know what will make him happy. We'll buy a new car tonight. <laughs> so I said to John, I have an idea. Let's get to the dealer fast. They close at 9, and it was the easiest sale this guy had ever known. I went in, and I said, we'll take that black Altima, and we don't need to test drive it, and we have to drive it home tonight. For some reason, I thought that that would help John's uh-huh. self-esteem if he had a radio, if he had a new car, but it didn't do a thing. Like, he didn't care about that car. He didn't care about that radio. He never even questioned, why are you writing out a check from the home equity loan? You know. Uh-huh. And then I knew from then on, from January until April, that something was wrong. And I remember one time I was so frustrated with him for not being able to drive the kids' places or help with homework, and I felt like I was a single mother. And I remember saying the most shocking thing I could ever say. I said, John, you're driving me crazy. I, I'm gonna, I feel like I want to kill myself. Now, I don't even know where those words came from because they're not my words, but he was completely blank. I mean, it was as if I hadn't even said it, and I thought, Boy, now we're really in trouble. Uh huh. So that was the frustration, the anger, the confusion. But I think I was so busy trying to take care of the kids and the groceries and paying the bills and worrying about him having a job or not having a job that I remember I would stay up until four in the morning. I was washing floors. I was, and I'm not a house neat neck in any way. I was washing floors. I was Cloroxing things. I was doing laundry. I was writing poems. I was making crafts. And I'd come up at four in the morning because I wasn't able to sleep. And he'd say, was I asleep when you came up? And I thought, I don't even know, John, because I wasn't even sleeping in the bed with you at this point. I had a quilt over in a little cubbyhole area of the bedroom because you were tossing and turning and sweating and, and so anxious that I wasn't getting any sleep for nights myself. And I would go to bed at 4, and John would be getting up at 5.30 to start taking the shower, getting dressed, you know, doing the long hour and 15, hour and a half trek to work, and then calling me. Um, I don't want to exaggerate. So I'll say call me three times a day saying, Trish, you've got to get me out of here. They're killing me here. Hmm. Wow. I'm sure so many people can relate to that. So why don't you – we're, we're going to have a, another break in a couple of minutes, but um, or in a minute, but – where, if you take us back to, obviously John survived, and how did that come about? Okay. Any of you? Oh, right now? Go ahead. Uh, John survived with oh. a lot of injuries. <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought we, were I thought we had a minute. All right, well, we'll, <laughs> we'll come back to that part. Okay. A happier ending when we come back. We're talking today with John and Patricia Gallagher and their daughter, Robin. Their story is uh, written in a book that's going to be coming out in about a month. It's called No More Secrets. They're sharing a lot of their secrets today to help people who are in similar circumstances. And uh, we're going to be talking about the team of angels that they created as well and uh, some other work that they're doing to, to try to 
make their story count to help others. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with easy to understand tools and tips with his weekly guests jim draws from successes with professionals college high school and youth teams coaches and players learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure tension and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with championship thinking every tuesday at 4 p.m pacific time right here on america's voice voice america voiceamerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today with John and Patricia Gallagher, the authors of a new book called No More Secrets, as they're sharing their secrets about um, coping with emotional and financial and relationship ruin and rising out of the ashes and sharing their story to help all of us. So continue with, we kind of left you in the hospital after after you're having jumped and they called 911, which seems pretty outrageous uh, for a hospital to be calling 911. But anyhow, um, and there you were at, finally ensconced somewhere, hopefully um, getting help. What happened? John? Yeah, um, when I when I jumped, I, I miraculously landed on my legs, and uh, you know that was probably the best thing that could have happened to me because it really took me jumping out the window in order for people to to take what I had seriously. Um, uh, fortunately, I did live. Uh, when I when I woke, uh, the doctor asked me if I could turn my neck. He was worried about my neck being broken. 
but what had happened was um, I had, uh, you know, my I guess uh, head head and arm abrasions. My legs were crushed, and uh, the first thing uh, that happened was they 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 gave me. There were two doctors that really took care of me: an orthopedic surgeon, Doctor Worthington. Uh, he took care of my legs. And Dr. Wolf, uh, he tried several, I guess maybe four or five, uh, antidepressants on me and, and it was, it was, um, Selexa that really, uh, helped me, uh, helped me tremendously because Selexa is an SSRI, it's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Uh, it helped my, my brain to, uh, be able to function properly again. Uh, I, I, I felt my appetite coming back. And once my appetite came back, I knew that I was going to start getting stronger. Um, but it took, I guess I was in the hospital for about six weeks, and I think I was in the psychiatric unit for about three of those six weeks. And uh, it was it was an education because, you know, you, you really feel sorry for a lot, of, a lot of those people there. They really don't, shouldn't be there in the first place if they had the right, uh, if they were taken care of properly and they had the right, right medication. But I think what I learned from that whole experience was um, that I, I really didn't have any coping mechanisms. Um, I didn't know how to balance my day. I didn't, I didn't know how to work and then come home and, and try to try to decompress and relax. You know, I did. I just worked and then I came. I would come home and I coached coach basketball and helped Trish with whatever had to be done in the house. But you know, in retrospect, what I did learn was uh, that. You know, in having depression, in order to survive depression, you really do need a, a proper uh, antidepressant. Um, I read a book uh, from Dr. Burns. It's called Feeling Good. In that book, I really learned about coping, uh, about um, cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy. And what that does is it, it teaches you how to correct your thinking. Well, I uh, hope that you also, along the way, between then and now, um, have gotten regular psychotherapy. I've gone to uh, Doctor Worthington. I guess I, I guess I go him go to him probably once every three months because uh, the the SSRI, the antidepressant that I'm on right now, is really doing a great job. It's enabling me to function at work. It's enabling me to uh, uh, to be myself. Well, uh, I, I well you know, I, I know you worked for a pharmaceutical company. I, I don't know. If, do you, are you still working for them? No, actually, um, I left. I left the corporate world and I work for Joseph A. Bank Clothier right now. Uh huh. Um, it's <laughs> it's probably even a more stressful job. I took the job in the beginning because I thought it would be a less stressful job. It is probably even more stressful, but but it's the type of job that I I enjoy. Um, during the day, I'm able to laugh with the customers, and I think that's tremendously healthy uh in 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 tackling something something like depression uh the ability to be able to laugh and and uh yeah uh, socialize and, 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 and then and then when i come home i'm able to to relax and it's it's not all uh, it's all it's not all comprehensive comprehensive like the like the corporate job was i mean mm-hmm. i was doing that i was taking work home uh, during the weekends i'd be there Working, doing the midnight oil. It was it was a tr- mm-hmm. tremendously stressful job. Well, I do want to. I do. I, I was starting to say about you know you're working for a pharmaceutical company because I was trying to make the point, um, which I think is very very important, 
uh, antidepressants are wonderful, you know. Um, I mean, when someone needs them, when it's the right, and finding the right one for the person and, and so on. And sometimes, yes, it does take a lot of trial and error. Um, however, that alone, and even CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy alone, is really not the um, therapy or the treatment of choice for, de- for major depression. Um, you really do need to have, in addition to, to that, I mean, those things are fine, yeah. but, um, but you also need to have psychotherapy, mm-hmm. um, preferably with a psychiatrist, but a right. lot of psychiatrists these days just give medication, see patients once a month and right. give them medication and that's that. But I, as a psychiatrist, refuse to do that. I only treat people... Um, if they come to me for psychotherapy and if they need medication, great, and I, I give them that as well. But yeah. um, I don't treat anyone who, who, with medication who won't also see me on a weekly basis for psychotherapy, regular psychoanalytically oriented psychotherapy. Because, um, I mean, just just in the, the you know the part of your story that we've heard so far, I mean, it's, no wonder you don't have good coping mechanisms. It must have been incredibly difficult for you. Um, in your childhood, having your mother die at nine and having her had major depression with hospitalizations and alcoholism and all of that, there was no one around to teach you how to have good coping mechanisms. And yes, um, as you were sort of alluding to earlier on, um, you presumably inherited the predisposition to depression, major right. depression, mm-hmm. and then the stress of, of life, work, and you know, being a, having to provide for a family of, of four and, and a big house and so on, um, put the final, you know, put the stressors on you that then broke down your ability to cope, and so exactly. the, the, the depression showed itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, there's, I guess. Uh, for the listeners, uh, there's so many different kinds of depressions, Dr. Lieberman. Uh, yes. The depression that I had was a chemical imbalance, and I think in order to correct what I had, the antidepressant was able to yes, yes. Al- al- I'm not saying allow, that, allow yes. the neurotransmitters to talk to each other. Yes, but, and, but um, I know, but yes, and when yes, there's a whole gradation of depressions right. from people who just feel unhappy to major depression, which is what you had, which is this yeah. genetic predisposition. However, right. what I'm trying, I'm not saying that you didn't need or don't need antidepressants. What I'm, the only thing that I'm saying, and this is really important, mm-hmm. um, not just for you, but I want to make sure my listeners know this because there yeah. are a lot of people suffering with various gradations of depression, and if you have the kind of depression where you need called major depression or where you need an antidepressant, that's fine and that does correct a chemical imbalance, but you also need therapy to go into things from the past, you know, the pains from the past, and even the the family kinds of things that I I started to bring up, but I saw it was a little difficult, like for Robin to talk about some of these these difficult emotions, you know, um, anger and, and, you know, my daddy isn't uh, providing for us anymore. We were supposed to move into this new house and, and guilt for, of course, anybody in a family where one member tries to commit suicide, every single family member feels some guilt about it, whether it's, whether it's, um, whether they should or not, they just, you know, whether there is anything that they could have done or should have done is a different story, but right. they just naturally will feel this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> bummer! <laughs> it's time you know to what? close. I, think, I, I just think the knowledge just wasn't there. The what? Um, the knowledge 
Yes, yes. No, I understand. I'm certainly not blaming you. I'm just kind of, I guess I'm saying that if you haven't had that yet, that I would recommend it, family therapy and individual psychotherapy to, to build these to build yourself to be even stronger. To, to build your self-esteem. Yes, that too. Yeah, absolutely. And and just for other people too to realize that it's not just about the medication. No, but it's not. But again, it's a the book is called No More Secrets, and I'm sure you go into much more detail than you were able to do even in our hour. But it's No More Secrets, and the website. Oh, we didn't get into the Team of Angels. <laughs> so go to their website, which is teamofangels.com teamofangels.com and speakingaboutdepression.com speakingaboutdepression.com Again, I'd like to thank my guests, John and Patricia Gallagher, for sharing your story. And um, really, again, I, I'm sure a lot of people can relate. And now, and now they know that there is a way out and up from the ashes. So thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.